Indeed, fairest Lord Jesus, and in our text before us today, you're going to see Jesus. And that text is uh, Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles now. Remain standing out of honor for God's word. Take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, way back in your Old Testament, actually in the, uh, the back part of the Old Testament, which is closer to the New Testament, but Daniel chapter 9, as you know, uh, at least I think you know, after Easter, which is coming up uh, very soon, after Easter, we're going to be going through uh, the book of Revelation. And in preparation for that, last few weeks, we've been in uh, looking at the Olivet Discourse, uh, and uh, now we're in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is one of those key passages to the modern day understanding of end times. So we're going to look at that. Next week we're going to look at what is called the rapture and so forth. We'll be in First Thessalonians 4. Then after that we're going to be preparing for Easter and so forth. Then after Easter, uh, Revelation. And so that's why we're in Daniel chapter 9 today. Scripture reading is going to begin in verse 24. And I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, which is verse 27. So verses 24 through 27 of Daniel chapter 9, God's word says this. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete uh, destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Would you all please bow your heads. Father in heaven, we are indeed grateful for your word, grateful for the opportunity now to uh, sit under the authority of your word. And so, Lord, we ask that this text, which has been such a difficult text for your church to understand through all these centuries, we ask, Lord, that you'd be merciful to me, the preacher, uh, that I would handle this text accurately. And certainly, Lord, if I do not Uh, If what I say is not in accordance with truth, not according to your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would make that known to us, that we'd hold to only that which is true. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing now as we go through this. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You may please be seated. And I want to take you back to just over 40 years ago. Uh, I was in seminary just over 40 years ago, and we had one, uh, one of our required classes. It was really only one a required class on the subject of eschatology. 
as many of you know, that means, you know, um, uh, last things, uh, end times, however you want to uh, put it. The class was called Daniel Rev. Uh, in other words, Daniel and Revelation. And they understood that, you know, in other words, that uh, the book of Revelation, to understand that adequately, boy, you need to understand the book of Daniel. And in fact, one of our textbooks was titled Daniel, the Key to Prophetic Revelation. And by the way, I still have it. Uh, my wife is in the nursery. If she were here, she would tell you that uh, he never gets rid of any of his books. I, I still have all the books from college, all books from seminary. Uh, I just don't get rid of books. I still have the book, and I found it. It was written by John Wolverd. And John Wolverd was probably one of the most well-known proponents of what is the, the modern-day end times view that you're all familiar with. And not only, though, do I still have the book, I still have the syllabus from the class that the professor gave us over 40 years ago. And I noticed, I was looking at the syllabus, and I noticed that for Daniel, for, for the Daniel portion of the class, um, for one of the required papers that we had to write, we were instructed this, quote, write a paper on a special problem or else on a key topic. Use at least seven sources. Write in a systematic outline form, laying out views uh, or else facets of the subject with good content under each point of the outline. Document each source immediately after using it, blah, 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 and all, all that typical stuff. But then here's the required format. So first, a brief statement of the subject. Second, give a proposed solution. And then third, the best view. And he says, here you give the favored view and defend it. Well, people, it's over 40 years later, and I'm going to do the very thing you see there in today's message. In other words, I'm first going to give you a brief statement of the subject before us today. And then you're going to see two solutions that have been offered, and then you will see the favored view. Or at least you're going to see the view that I favor, that I think is the, the correct view. But unlike 40 years ago, my goal is very different from what it was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, my goal was to get the paper done, finish the class, and go on to the, the next one. Today, my goal is very different. Because today, my goal is that you will all see in this text something that is easily missed in the modern times, end time view of, Don, of Daniel chapter 9. And that is that is in this text, we have a tremendously important prophecy that should cause all of you to sit up and take notice because here we have one of the clearest texts on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so first, remember our little outline that I'm following from uh, Professor Roskop. First, the brief statement of the subject before us. Well, here it is. You have all heard of the seven-year tribulation. You've all heard that. There's coming up some seven-year tribulation uh, period and so forth. Again, the common teaching, I've said this, I think, two or three weeks ago, the common teaching that you are mostly familiar with is that at some point in the future, all the Christians around the world are going to be raptured. They're going to be caught up into the sky to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, and, and at that point, 
that will begin a seven-year tribulation period here on earth. First three and a half years will be okay. But in the midpoint of this seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist is going to be revealed, and he will demand worship to be worshipped as God. You won't be able to buy or sell, according to this view, unless you have the mark of the beast in your forehead or on the back of your hand. And that will begin the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of that seven-year tribulation, called the great tribulation, which will last again for three and a half years. Then Christ is going to return with his church. It was, remember, caught up into the heaven. He's going to return now with the church, and he's going to set up a 1,000-year millennial kingdom here on earth where Jesus Christ is ruling from the throne of David. That is textbook end times view that most of you are familiar with. But people, I want to ask the question. I think it's a simple question. I think it's a fair question. Where do we see in the book of Revelation this seven-year tribulation period? Nowhere. We don't see it anywhere in the book of Revelation. And so, okay, then, then and if we don't see it in the book of Revelation, where do we get this seven-year tribulation period from? Well, the modern-day evangelical will point to the text that is before us today. They will point you to Daniel chapter 9 and say, here, here is where you see a seven-year tribulation period. Here is where you see not only a seven-year tribulation, but also here is where you see the Antichrist causing all kinds of problems in a future rebuilt temple. But I'm going to say to you that what we actually see here and the typical modern-day left-behind view could not be further apart. And I mean that literally. What I'm going to say to you today could not be further apart from the typical view that you have heard, and here's why. Because they say that in Daniel 9 here, we have a reference to the Antichrist. And I'm going to declare to you that now what we have here is a reference to Jesus Christ. And again, people, you can't get further apart than that. One person is saying this is the Antichrist. Another person is saying, no, this is Jesus Christ. Again, you can't get further apart than that. People, that's the brief statement of the subject that is before us. And so we move now to the proposed solution. How should we understand verses 24 to 27? Well, listen to what Daniel says. It's a remarkable prophecy. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, I think many of you know that is not 70 weeks. Those are weeks of years. Uh, in other words, it's, it's 70 weeks of years. Each week is seven years. Seven times 70 is 490. And everyone agrees with that. There, there's no dispute uh, on that. Well, so what do we see? Well, within 70 Weeks of years, again, within 490 years, certain things have been decreed, we are told, for your people and your holy city. Now, who's your people? What's the Jews? What's the holy city? It's Jerusalem. 
And what things have been decreed? We just saw it. Verse 24. Look again at verse 24. It says, To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And you say, wow, great. Uh, That's a lot of really good stuff there. That, That all sounds good. When will all of that happen? Well, when the Messiah comes, of course. Well, when will that be? Look at verse 25. It says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks and will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. People, this is wonderful. Do you see that? When the Jews are given a decree... To rebuild Jerusalem, you start your watch. And from that decree until Messiah the Prince, the prophecy says, there will be uh, seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 483 years if you're doing the math. So from that moment till, uh, start your watch. When that decree is given from that moment until Messiah the Prince, 483 years. Well, when did that happen? When was that decree given? Well, scholars debate the precise date of the edict. But for our purposes, I'm going to say to you, the decree to rebuild was given by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. Some say, well, no, it was actually 458 B.C. Uh, Whatever. Add 483 years to that, and it's going to take you to the time of Christ. And some people like to get very specific I noticed in the MacArthur Study Bible, he says, this was fulfilled at the triumphal entry of 9 Nisan AD 30. In other words, he says, this takes you right to the point where Christ rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Well, maybe. Uh, But for our purposes, let's just say, from the decree to rebuild to, uh, to Christ being presented as Messiah is 483 years. But the prophecy is 490 years. Seven years are left off. In fact, notice Gabriel divides his prophecy into three sections. There's seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. The final week of years. Seven years are missing. What happened? Men and women, here, right here, is where the typical modern end times view and the historic uh, view diverge. We're going parallel with each other, all in agreement. Uh, The modern end times view, the historic view, but right here is where they go off completely different directions. We are told that right before Christ died, that stopwatch that we started when the decree was given to rebuild, that stopwatch stops right before Christ is crucified, and that there's been a gap of time of almost 2,000 years and counting before the final seven years will take place. In other words, we are told these 70 weeks don't run concurrently. There's a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. The final seven years, we are told, 
will begin when the church is raptured. When the church is raptured, then you hit that stopwatch again and you finish the final seven years. Now, people, let's pause here for a moment. I said this a few years ago when we went through Daniel. I'm going to say it again to you now. Let's imagine for a moment, none of you have ever been to the United States. You don't have a clue how big the United States is. You don't know anything about it. You, you, you came from another country not knowing anything about the U.S. You flew into LAX last night, and naturally the first thing you wanted to do was go to church at First Baptist Church in Garden Grove. So you're all here uh, at church, but tomorrow you're getting on a bus and you're going to New York. And you don't have any idea how far away is New York, but I know. Uh, I'm an American, you know, I've been to New York. So you ask me, hey, Wade, how far is it from Garden Grove to New York? We're getting on a bus tomorrow. And I say to you, it's 490 miles. Okay, 490 miles, Wade says. And so you're preparing yourself for what? What is that, a 10-hour bus trip? And so tomorrow morning you get in the bus and you're on your way to New York. But after about 15 hours, you're thinking, man, I think... I think something's wrong here. So you call me. And I say to you, no, 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 you guys didn't understand. When I said 490 miles, what I meant was this. You get on that bus, get to I-40, go east. When you get to Flagstaff, turn that odometer off. That's 483 miles. Turn the odometer off. Uh, because, you know, after that, it's really desolate stuff. Yeah, there's nothing to see, little tumbleweeds blowing across the road. There's nothing good to see. You're going to go through Texas and all that stuff. I don't count those miles. Then, when you start to see, about seven miles away, you'll start to see some really tall buildings. When you see that, turn your odometer back on and go the final seven miles and add it up, you guys. 483, uh, 483 miles to Flagstaff. About 2,500 miles that I don't count, plus seven equals 490 miles. Now, is that even plausible? Is that even conceivable that somebody would say something like that? No, it's not. And yet that's what we're being asked to believe. Men and women, that's why Professor E.J. Young says this. He says, in Scripture, when a measure of time in which an event is to occur is designated, the measure is intended in its plain, ordinary sense. He says, for example, Genesis 45, 6, the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine were respectively, respectively seven years. In Numbers 14, 34, the 40 years of wandering were consecutive years. The three days after which Christ was to arise were three consecutive days. And so Young says, we are bold, therefore, to lay it down as an absolute rule and admitting of no exceptions, that when a definite measure of time or space is specified by the number of units comprising it within, a, uh, within which a certain event is to happen or a certain thing is to be found, the units of time or space which make up that measure are to be understood as running continuously. The natural presumption, therefore, is that the prophecy is speaking of 70 consecutive sevens. 
And people realize this. Without this gap of time, the whole modern day, end times, left behind view collapses. If they, if they don't have this huge gap and this seven-year tribulation that is yet to come, the whole house of cards collapses. Well, we read on. Verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy, destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with the flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now here's what you have heard. The prince who is to come is the Antichrist. He will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And he will make a covenant with the Jews. But in the middle of the, the week, that final seven years, in the middle of that, that's three and a half years, he'll put a stop to the sacrifices that are going on in a, in a third rebuilt temple. And that will be the abomination of desolation. That's what you've all heard. But that is not how the church understood this prior to the mid-1800s when this modern view was invented. Well, that's, that's not very charitable. We'll say that middle of the 1800s when this modern view was first proposed. That's probably more charitable. I have a 1599 Geneva Bible. A real 1599 Geneva Bible. Many of you know that because I keep mentioning it all the time. But it, it is, uh, it, it's a, that's what the, the, the pilgrims brought over on the Mayflower. It was a 1599 Geneva Bible. I have one. It was the first Bible to have notes, study notes, uh, you know, in the margins. Uh, so that people, you know, could, could understand what is being said and so forth. So it's interesting to look back to, again to the 16th century what did they say about these verses? Well, I looked in my 1599 Geneva Bible, uh, uh, verse 26. They include this note. In this last week of the 70, Christ shall come and preach and suffer death. In other words, they understood this is referring to Christ, not some antichrist. Look again at the text. First, who's the prince who is to come? Well, we just saw Messiah the prince mentioned in verse 25. Clearly, that is Jesus Christ. And now in verse 26, we're supposed to believe that we are now talking about the Antichrist? People, remember what I said in the beginning. I want you to see in this text the power, the majesty, and the work of Christ. I want you to see the glorious good news. And you see that if you simply look at the text. I want you to notice four things when you do that. First, the prince in verse 26 is not the Antichrist. The prince who is to come is the subject. And the subject must agree with the subject of verse 25. Christ is the subject of verse 25 verse 26, and verse 27. Second, look at verse 27. Verse 27 says this, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, 
But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. In the middle of the week, he will make a covenant, we are told, with the many. Christ is the one who makes a covenant because God is a covenant-making God. Satan doesn't make covenants. God makes covenants. And by the way, notice verse 26 says, the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary. And you're going to ask, in a way, are you saying Christ did this? He destroyed the city and the sanctuary? Yep. That's what I'm saying. Well, actually, the text says, you know, that uh, his people did this. Uh, you're saying uh, his people did this? What, you mean the disciples? No. Isaiah chapter 10. God is bringing his judgment down upon Israel. And he uses the Assyrians to do it. So in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, we read this. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it, Assyria, against the people of my fury. In other words, he uses the Assyrians as his weapon to bring judgment upon Israel. Remember when we were going through Habakkuk, same thing. God says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people, to do what? To bring judgment upon Israel. To which Habakkuk says, you, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O rock, have established them to correct. They're a tool in God's hand. He uses the Assyrians as tools to bring judgment. He uses the Chaldeans as tools to bring judgment. And in 70 AD, he used the Roman army as his people, his tool, to bring destruction on Jerusalem in judgment. Fourth, Look at the wording of verse 27. He makes a covenant with the many for one week. Remember, what's the prophecy? Well, after 483 years, the Messiah, the prince, will come. He'll be revealed. Halfway, three and a half years later, that Messiah, the prince, is going to be cut off. Actually, he's going to be crucified. And when he was crucified, what happened? Well, his work was finished, wasn't it? And he has put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. Well, why? Because he's the final sacrifice. That's why the sacrificial system was stopped. Because this final sacrifice has been made. And the night before he was crucified, what did Jesus say? It's the Last Supper. He says, this is my blood of the covenant 
which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Men and women, again, look at verse 24. Look at 24. The prophecy mentions six things that will happen within the 490 years when Messiah the Prince comes. Look at those things. Finish the transgression. Christ fulfilled this when he shut up the transgression by his atoning death. Uh, To make an end of sin, Christ's death provided the way for sin to be removed. To make atonement for iniquity, Christ, of course, atoned for sins. In fact, notice in those first three items, sin is pictured as transgressions, sins, and iniquity. And as E.J. Young says, these three words represent in its fullness the nature of that curse which has separated man from God. The first stated purpose of the decreeing of the period of 77s is to abolish the curse. Who, in light of the New Testament revelation, can read these words without coming face to face with that one perfect sacrifice which was offered by him who appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. End of quote. Hebrews 9, 26. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says this. He, that's Christ, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The first three were negative. The next three are positive. Still verse 24, to bring in everlasting righteousness together with the taking away of the removal of sin. There is a positive unfolding of salvation and that is righteousness is to be brought in from without. An alien righteousness is to be brought in. Christ's righteousness is to be imputed to us, credited to us. To seal up vision and prophecy When sin is brought to an end by the appearance of the Messiah, so prophecy which has predicted his coming uh, and his saving work is no longer needed. It has fulfilled its task and is therefore sealed up. And to anoint the most holy place. The word place is not in the original. It's literally to anoint the most holy or the most holy thing. Remember, people, in the Old Testament, anointing oil was the symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. Christ is the anointed one. Men and women, E.J. Young, whom I mentioned before, he sums up these six items by saying this. The termination of the 77s coincides then not with the times of Antiochus, nor with the end of the present age, the second advent of our Lord, but with his first advent. For when our Lord ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit descended, there remained not one of the six items of Daniel 9.24 that was not fully accomplished. Now, you might say, if you've been paying close attention and you've been adding it all up, you might say, but that takes us only to the middle of the 70th week. There's still three and a half years left. What about the remaining three and a half years? Well, after Christ's crucifixion, 
the early church's ministry was to the Jews. That's Acts 1 through 9. Remember, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Who's that? The Jews. Your holy city, Jerusalem. Paul was converted soon after Stephen's death. And Paul wrote that he met with Peter three years later. And at that time, Peter was given instruction that the gospel is now to go to the Gentiles. And that marks the end of the 70 weeks for Israel. People, it all fits. It all fits together so perfectly. Now, in our effort to find seven years of tribulation to make this common, uh, typical, left-behind, end-times view fit, uh, we miss the real glory of this passage, which, again, is the power and the work of Christ. Over 20 years ago, I think it was over 20 years ago, there used to be, maybe there still is, there used to be a group that met here in Garden Grove at the Community Meeting Center. There was a group called the Interfaith Council. I think it was uh, not only Garden Grove, but I think also Stanton and Westminster and so forth. And, and it's just what it sounds like. The Interfaith Council was all representatives from all these different faiths which would get together. I don't know if it was once a month or every Tuesday uh, something like that, and to get together and uh, and discuss. You know, what's a, you know, what are the things we hold in common? What are our differences, and so forth? Let's understand each other a little bit better. Uh, you know, I rarely went. Well, I kind of never went, but uh, I went once. I went once because they were doing a a panel. They wanted to have a panel, uh, do a discussion in front of the the group, and the panel was to be made up of a of a rabbi, of a, a, a Muslim imam, I think, or at least a representative of Islam, and, uh, and a, either a pastor or a priest. And because they wanted those three, because the question uh, that they were to discuss in this panel was, who is Abraham? Oh, what do you guys believe about Abraham? And so naturally, uh, you know, you have a, the Jews and the Muslims and the and Christians, which all have a certain understanding about Abraham. Well, the person who headed up the interfaith council was a man by the name of a, a, a Buddhist monk by the name of Reverend Kusala. Uh, I knew him because he was a, uh, a chaplain at the Garden Grove PD with me. Uh, he was our, obviously our Buddhist chaplain, and I think I was the only Christian he knew, and he had to, you know, fill the seat for a Christian for this panel. He had already got the rabbi, already got the, uh, the imam, and he needed now a Christian, so he just asked me if I would do it, and I, I agreed, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And so the three of us were up on this stage, and um, with the question before us, who is Abraham? And naturally, they began with, the Jewish rabbi, who's, who's Abraham? And he, you know, we went through his whole thing. Well, when it was my turn to speak, I referred to this text that you just saw. And I was speaking to the rabbi. And it wasn't a debate or anything like that, but I was just addressing my question to the rabbi. And I said, your own prophet. And I said it very nicely. I don't know if I'm saying it nice now. I said it very, very kindly. But I said, you know, your own prophet 
says that 483 years after the decree to rebuild the temple, until Messiah the Prince, uh, you know, 483 years, the, the Messiah will appear. And I said, and if it's not Christ, then who is it? In other words, what's the fulfillment of this prophecy? Either your prophet was wrong, or you need to come up with somebody else 483 years later. And then I said this, it points you to Christ. And Christ himself said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And he was glad because in Christ is where we have salvation. In Christ is where we have true freedom. And so let's close by going back to the comments in the Geneva Bible from 1599, a real genuine Geneva 1599 Bible. Listen to what they say about verse 24. Remember in verse 24, Daniel writes, you know, 70 weeks have been decreed for your, for your people. Now listen to a comment again from, uh, from the 16th century. Here's what the Geneva Bible says. He alludes to Jeremiah's prophecy who prophesied that their captivity would be 70 years. You know, it's judgment, 70 years. But now God's mercy would sevenfold exceed his judgment, which would be 490 years and would continue to the coming of Christ and continue forever. Men and women flee to Christ. The mercy that we have in Christ the fulfillment of this wonderful prophecy that you see here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for these words. Lord, how we thank you that you have not left us to deal with our own sin, to try to somehow make ourselves right before you, but instead you have given us Messiah the Prince. Lord, we thank you for such a phenomenal a prophecy that was fulfilled and we thank you for the one who fulfilled it, your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, indeed, may we flee to this one where we might have new life, where we might have abundant life, where we might have freedom. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We pray your blessing upon your church, and we pray it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.